Welcome every one of you, Westerville Campus, welcome Short North Campus, Hilliard Campus, every guest walking through these doors today. It is an honor to serve you and to the men and women joining us at three correctional facilities right now. Come on. Come on, we welcome you. We welcome you. And uh, I just wanted you to know that at our newest correctional facility in Orient last week, 239 men present at that service. Come on, somebody. How incredible is that? And it's just been going on for a few weeks, and so we're, we're grateful for what God is doing in the church. Glad you're here. We, we are in the second week of a series we're calling This Is Who We Are. And I, I think it's important that, that you, you understand God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And if you've been around for a while or if you plan to stick around for a while, you're going to hear that a lot from me and from the people around you. We, we believe that God loves you. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. He created you on purpose for his purpose. And you will never be fully fulfilled in life until you know the reason God created you. You have a creator. You are the created. And the creator always has a plan for whatever the creator decides to make. And our creator, his name is Jesus, and he loves you, and he has a plan and a purpose for you. Come on, somebody. He really does. And... And we do a really good job of screwing it up a lot. And, and, and you saw a bunch of screwed up people on that video. Come on, somebody. Like this, just a bunch of jacked up people. I'm a jacked up person. Y'all are surrounded by some jacked up people in this house. But those are real people. They're a part of this church. And, and God takes jacked up people and he makes something amazing out of us when we submit our lives fully and wholly to him. And so I want you to know that God has a plan and a purpose for your life, but I also want you to know that, that as you have an individual call, we also collectively have been called by God to do something incredible together. That one of the great things about God and, and, and being with him is that when Jesus saves you, and, and a lot of us we're saved today. Like maybe you're not yet, but you're about to be. Here's all that means. You've put your faith and trust in Jesus. He's forgiven you of your sins. He's, he's reunited you with your heavenly father and you are on your way to heaven. You're saved. Come on, somebody. How many of you, you're saved today and you're glad that you're saved. You're grateful. But what happens is when he saves you, he doesn't just draw you to the Father. You're not just drawn to the Father only. You're, you're welcomed into his family. And, and sometimes I don't think we think enough about this, this part of the equation, that, that God draws me to himself in Christ, but in doing so, he is adopting me. He's adopted us into his family, and we believe that every part of the family is valuable. Every part of the family has a part to play, and every local church, though we've been given one mission in Christ, we, we have some uniqueness about us, just like any other church. You're going to have some uniqueness about you, but we have been collectively, the church of Jesus Christ, been called to accomplish something significant and great together. Jesus is still changing lives through his church. <laughs> And, and what's amazing is, listen, there are no perfect families. Anybody, can you, anybody just attest, like, you know your family's not perfect. Anybody, like, I'm not right. I know my family's not right. How many of you would say, I'm the only normal person in my family? Raise your hand. I'm the only normal one. Ain't nobody normal but me. How many of you know there's no perfect churches? 
There are no perfect churches. Why? Because the church isn't an organization, a network. It's not a building. It is people. We are the church, the people of God who've been called by God, sent by God, given a mission by God to take the good news of God to everybody, everywhere, in all the world. But because the church is us, it's people, there is no perfect church. And yet what what I'm so blown away with is this, that in spite of the fact that we've done a really good job of, of, of making a mess of what we've been given by Christ to carry, when Jesus gives a promise, when he gives a word, he doesn't turn back on his word. And so when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Come on. He meant it. He meant it. He's building it. He's never stopped building it. He's still growing it. He's still transforming cities through his church. He's still changing lives by the work of his Holy Spirit through his church. And I love that about Jesus, that he doesn't give up on people, even though we like to a lot of times give up on people. But we ought not because he has not, and because he has not, we will not, he never will, and we ought never give up on the world around us because Jesus, for God so loves the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For Jesus came into the world not to bring condemnation to it, but to bring freedom and salvation and life and hope and peace. Everything that this world needs, Jesus is and Jesus has. So we're studying the book of Acts, specifically Acts chapter 2. We're looking at the early church, and I think it's important, too, that we understand we're not studying a different church. We're the same church. This is, this is the same church that Jesus started. We're just around 2,000 years later. So we do say talk about the early church, the Acts 2 church, because the book of Acts records the beginnings of the church. But we are still the same church. We are still carrying the same message that those early Christians carried. And though I think that when we look at the world today, we would see that there's a lot in our world that has changed. There's a lot about even people that it has changed. There's some things about the church that, that has, has, has maybe changed. But, but I think if we're, we're really honest and we look at the early church and we look at all of the history of the church and we consider the day that we're living in today, there's a lot that's still the same. There's a lot that's still the same in the world. There's a lot that's still the same in the church. And, and I shared something with you at the end of last week's message. I want to start with it actually today because I know some of y'all, you don't come to church every week. So I'm getting a whole bunch of you for the first time. So you're like, I, I wasn't here last week. Thank you for showing me what you showed last week. And then if you were here last week, this is just going to be kind of a, a, a really important recap. Because when I was first shown this, and this was first explained to me, the picture that I'm about to show you. It gave me a, a, a much better understanding as to the times that we're living in today. And even it gave me a really good understanding of the early church and the history of the church. And it, it brought significant clarity to my mind and to my heart, helping me not only better understand our culture, but understanding the, the significance of the moment that we're living in together today. And so what I showed you last week was that the church started with Jesus, right? It started with Jesus. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty of our sin. Three days after that, he's raised up from the grave. Forty days later, he ascends to the Father in heaven. About a week after that, the Holy Spirit is given on the day of Pentecost. And the, the, the church is birthed of the Holy Spirit. 
And I know like people get real confused about what's Pentecost and Pentecostal and all this. The, the penta literally means 50. So Pentecost is basically Easter, the resurrection plus 49 days. And that's when the church is born. It was started of Jesus, started by him and born of the Holy Spirit. And for the first three centuries, for the first 300 years or so of the church, here's what we know about the church. We know that it was incredibly persecuted, terribly persecuted. And it wasn't just 501c3 status being threatened. You know, if you don't do what we want you to do, we're going to strip your tax-exempt status. It wasn't that. It was literally people running and fleeing for their lives. Their freedom was under attack. Their lives were under attack. This wasn't an organization being attacked. It was people, families, children, parents. And for the first three centuries, the church lived under intense persecution, and yet it grew incredibly fast. The church was an unstoppable force. It was fueled by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And, and the, the message of Jesus through the church spread rapidly in, in a lot of ways because of persecution. Matter of fact, in those first 300 years, there, there were many periods within that time frame that as a follower of Jesus, you, you would be more likely to die of a martyr's death than to die of natural causes simply because you chose to follow Jesus. It was a difficult time for the church. They were running and afraid for their lives. They were being scattered all over the place, and yet the church thrived. It grew like wildfire. People were being saved at an incredible rate, and people were being healed, and the church was, was just this unstoppable force. And, and we talked about some of the marks of the early church. We covered three last week, and the first was that they were radically devoted to Jesus. They met together to pray daily, to worship Jesus daily. They, they could not help stop talking about, they could not stop talking about what they'd seen and what they'd heard. It was the message of Jesus that they preached, that they declared they were all about Jesus. And the second mark was this, that they were devoted to each other. They loved each other. They were committed to one another. Sometimes they didn't get along, but, but they tried to set their, their preferences aside for the sake of the other. They were generous toward one another. They met together daily. And then the third is this, that they were devoted to the mission of Jesus, the only mission that Jesus has ever given his church. And that is to take the good news of Jesus Christ, the eternal life that comes by him and through him only to all people in all the world everywhere. Go and don't stop going. Preach and don't stop preaching. Love and don't stop loving. Just do what I did. Walk in my footsteps. Remember, Jesus never told the world to go to church. He told the church, I want you to go to the world, reach people, lost people, bring them home in Jesus' name. And I thought because this is a series called This Is Who We Are, I thought it might be important to, to just explain a few things to you as to those three marks we talked about last week and how those three marks have been our marks since the very beginning, eight years ago. Eight, just a little over eight years ago, when we launched the church, we said, hey, we're not going to try to do everything and, and to please everybody, because if you try to please everybody, you won't please anybody. And if you try to do all things, you won't be good at anything. And so we, we said, let's be a simple church and let's, let's organize our church around the book of Acts, the Acts 2 church, and let's just try to do a few things well. And, and the first thing we said is let, let's have a worship experience devoted to Jesus 
where people can gather together and worship him and encounter the living God. That's all we've ever wanted. That's all I've ever wanted as a pastor is to create a space to to be a part of building a place where people could come and encounter God, his love for them, the presence and the power of his Holy Spirit. It's all we've ever wanted is, is for people to encounter Jesus. It's why we try to make these worship experiences as distraction-free as possible. That's why we ask you not to bring small kids into the worship experiences. And, and I know some parents are like, yeah, but they don't bother me. Well, they might not bother you, but maybe they, they're, they're going to bother the person behind you or in front of you. And, and, and besides, we, we have incredible worship experiences set up specifically for your children where they can encounter Jesus and be with kids their own age and learn about Jesus in an age-appropriate environment. But, but the last thing that we want is, is for someone to be on the edge of, of making a decision for Jesus, but then they get distracted because, you know, the, the Cheerios are falling all over the floor and the kid starts crying right at the most important part of the service. And we, we want to create as distraction-free environments as possible so that we can take away all of the barriers that might keep somebody from encountering God and saying yes to Jesus. It's why we seat people the way we do and part people the way we do. And um, I, I, I know some of y'all can be kind of mean to our ushers. I, I think we need to honor our ushers right now. Come on, put your hands together for, for our ushers. No, seriously, seriously. I, I need to explain this to you. Here's why we seat and, and park the way we do. We, 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 we've learned that when a person comes to a church for the first time, they are freaked out. Most people are, are very filled with anxiety. We, we, if you think about going into an environment you've never been in before, I remember the first time I went to a Catholic church. It was totally different. I didn't know what I was doing. I just followed along with everybody. My friend said, you're not Catholic. You can't take communion. I said, don't tell me what I can and can't do. So I went ahead and I, I tried to take it. The, the, the priest said the, the, the body of Christ. And I just looked at him because I'm, I'm from a repeat after me church. So I said the body of Christ. And I took it. And then, and then he, he said the, the blood of Christ. And I was like the blood of Christ. And, and then I just, see, I didn't even notice nobody else was saying anything. And, and so I got back to my seat. My friend's like, I'm never bringing you back to church. You embarrass me. <laughs> People are really, it's, there, there's anxiety associated with going to a church for the first time. And, and where am I going to park? And what's going to happen? And people going to be nice to me? And and so we, we try to eliminate some of those anxieties by, by showing people where to park, even showing people where to sit. And, and I want you to think about this because I've been listening. I've kind of been peeking in a little bit and hearing how mean church people can be to ushers when they try to, hey, would you scoot in? I'm not scooting nothing. Could you maybe, you know, help us? No, I ain't helping you with nothing. But, but here, here's, why we do, here's why we do this. Listen, if you were a guest at somebody's house for the first time, for the first time, you, you're never been to their house before, they're having you over for dinner, the first thing you're, you're going to want to try to figure out is what are the house rules? Because I might have my own house rules, but I need to know your house rules so that I can honor your house. And I don't want to, as a guest, I don't want to break any of your house rules. And, and if the table's all set and nobody sat down at the table yet, what are you going to do as a first-time guest? You're going to wait until somebody tells you where to sit. Why? Because you don't want to sit in somebody's seat. And you don't know what you're supposed to do, so you're going to wait till somebody tells you where to sit. And that, that's going to alleviate some anxiety for you. I don't have to try to figure this out. Just tell me where to sit. And, and if you, you only have a few seats in your house and you got some teenagers all sitting on the couch and the guests just came over and they're not moving, what are you going to do? You're going to get some ushers up in here and say, hey, scoot in or get off the couch. Why? Because we've got some guests coming and we're going to be ready for them. And we want to be ready for them and we need to be ready for them. And... Uh, and I know, I know, some of y'all get here early and you look around, it's like there's hundreds and hundreds of empty seats because everybody comes about the second song. I don't like it, but it's just the way that it works. 
And what's happened is, listen, there have been times when, there have been many times where, where once the worship starts and everybody's standing, there, there could be 150 open seats on the floor, but, but our ushers can't see them, or there's like two here, one here, three here. doesn't really help a family of six walking in, second and a half song into the worship experience. And, and so we've had moments where we've had to seat people in the vestibules or in the worst seats of the house only to have everybody sit down and realize, man, had people just recognized there's an empty seat beside me, so I'm going to go ahead and fill in this empty seat so that the ushers can have an easier time seating people when they come just a few minutes late. Like that could make all the difference in the the world. Like you scooting in, not even being told, but just scooting into the middle and making room for guests who are coming in after you, that could be all the difference that it, that it takes for them to have an incredible encounter, to know that we've prepared for you, we're ready for you, and that person very well may say yes to Jesus for the first time in their lives. More than 80% of the first-time guests who walk through these doors every single week make a personal decision to follow Jesus. I love that about this church. I love that. And so I, I hope maybe that that might help some of you not be so mean to our ushers and just don't even wait to be told anymore. Just scoot in, make room. We seat from front to back. This is what we do is who we are. The, the Bible says in Acts 2 that of the early church, they were all together. They were all together. They, they, they were on mission together. They, they understood what they were a part of together. They, they had everything in common. They got what they were there to do. They broke bread in homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And how, what we do is this. We say, Let, let's have small groups where people can get to know one another, open the Bible together, study his word, grow together. This is why we do what we do. And then small groups that come and worship together and, and they connect with each other during the week and they're eating together and they're studying together and they're supporting one another and encouraging one another, then guess what? We can serve together the mission and we call that beyond our walls. Everything we do beyond the walls, missions, outreach, beyond our walls, impact. Dream Center, we just celebrated last night. Dream Center, four years we've been running with the Dream Center. Come on, somebody. It's the Dream Center, it's global missions, local missions, everything we do beyond the walls. Now, now let's get back to this chart. In 313 AD, something happened significant in the history of the church. 313 AD, the emperor Constantine decided, okay, Christianity is not going to be illegal. We're going to make it legal. He legalizes Christianity. And then in 315 AD, Constantine makes the Christian faith the law of the land. And, uh, you know, people were excited about it then, but here, here, here's what happens. What it begins is the, this period that we're referring to as the Constantine parentheses. And what that means is when, when he makes Christianity the law of the land, Christianity, if you study its history, not only does Christ, the Christian faith become the official religion of the Roman Empire, but it will come to, to be, become the dominant influence of Western culture and Western civilization. And for the next 1,700 years, Christianity will maintain its dominant influence of our culture. And where we grew up, where I grew up, it was within these parentheses. Most of us grew up within these parentheses. But what we're beginning to discover is that somewhere about the turn of this past century, the parentheses closed. And what maybe you've been feeling and sensing in the spirit, maybe this picture might help explain to you why you've been feeling the way that you feel. It's that for the first time in 1,700 plus years, Christians are living outside of these parentheses. 
that somewhere around the turn of the century, we we began to hear phrases like living in a post-Christian culture, a post-Christian nation, and the reality is we are. And and there there, there have been some significant changes in our culture because now we're living outside of the parentheses where Christianity is no longer the, the dominant influence. And so objective truth has been replaced by subjective truth and Pluralism and cultural relativism and tolerance have taken a deep root, which, which basically means to, to lay down your, your deeply held, biblical-rooted, foundational truths that you know to be true so that everybody can just get along. And in the Bible, in a lot of circles, even in our culture today, is being viewed as nothing more than some sort of hate speech diary rather than the life-giving, God-breathed, spirit-divine book of instruction that it is. And so what's happened is Christianity is no longer the dominant influence of the West. We think we're smarter than God. We, we, we think we're more woke than he is. We know better than he does. We are now the enlightened ones, whereas we all grew up in a world where Christianity influenced everything, from culture to government, social work, how we school our children, everything, how we take care of people. And now for the first time in more than 1,700 years, we are on the visiting team. Come on. The refs are biased against us. The crowds don't really like us anymore. Pretty soon they're going to hate us because that they hated Jesus. Jesus said the world will hate you, not because of you or the church you go to. Jesus said the world will hate you because of me. And so the big idea is if we're going to thrive in the 21st century church, I believe we need to align ourselves more with the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd century church than even the 20th century church. Because the 20th century church, while we were the moral majority, we kind of got a bit cocky with ourselves. And, and, uh, and when you're the majority, you know, everybody just kind of gets to blend in. And there was a lot of blending in. There were a lot of gray areas. And what we're we're seeing now is the gray area is shrinking. And people who are devoted to Jesus and people who don't believe anything, both of those spectrums are growing. But the middle ground is is basically shrinking because here's what we're understanding. Even though we live in a lights out world, the light of Jesus shines the brightest when the lights are out in the world around us. Come on, somebody. And so... And so this might sound dire to some of you. I don't think it's dire. See, I believe as the early church, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I believe these days represent not our worst days, but our most hopeful days. If we truly learn to reflect Jesus the way the early church reflected Jesus and trust the powerful, unmatched work of his Holy Spirit in and through the church the way they did. Come on, it's the best of dates. These are the most hopeful of dates. That's why the fastest growing church in the world today is in Iran. Most Christians on the planet right now are living in China. What do those two places have in common? You're not free to worship Jesus. You're not free to share your faith. And yet the, the Christian faith is spreading like wildfire. I believe we are on the verge in this nation of one of the greatest, if not the greatest, spiritual awakening we've ever seen in this nation. If we would live lights on in a lights out world. And I'm telling you, we're seeing Jesus come up in the most unexpected ways. You know how I spent my Friday night this week? I spent my Friday night this week at a Kanye West Sunday service. Come on, somebody. (laughs) 
I'm telling you, listen, I was kind of like a quiet skeptic. Like, I, I ain't going to say anything real publicly right now because I don't really know what to say. And, and uh, I know that the Apostle Paul, when he got converted, the Christians were like, I don't know about that boy right there. Like, I, I don't know if I can trust him. I don't know what's going on. And so a friend invited me. It was at his church, Bethany World Prayer Center in, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He said, hey, you need to come. So I got up at 2.45 in the morning, brought two guys with me. We went to Sunday service. And I'm telling you, when I was standing in a field of about 6,000 people, there was no, there was no stage. It was just a tiny platform. We started to worship Jesus, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at Kanye, and I'm like, when are you going to take the stage? He stepped up on that platform for one song. He sang three songs in two, two hours. He stepped onto the platform, sang one song. The entire two hours, it was all about Jesus, everybody worshiping Jesus. I could hear some guys behind us saying, F this, what, what are we even doing here? Like we came to pay for Kanye and what's all this Jesus stuff about? And then at the end of the night, when, when the, the choir director said, if you want to receive Jesus Christ as your personal savior, be forgiven of your sins and give your lives to Jesus, I want you to lift your hands up right now. And we turned around and those guys that were cussing Kanye out had both their hands in the air and they were saying a salvation prayer out loud. I saw thousands, I saw thousands of people with their hands in the air who thought they were coming to a concert but ended up giving their lives to Jesus. I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit is doing an incredible work in our culture right now. These are the best of times, not the worst of times. I was standing in the midst of a tent revival. There was just no tent. And afterwards, me and my pastor friends and me, we're like, what are we going to do in our churches? I, I just want to shut our church down because, man, I, listen, I, I just I want to see God move in our city. I want to see him move in your life. The early church was all about Jesus. If you want to know who are we, what are we all about, we are all about Jesus. We are all about Jesus. I, I don't want to hear you talk about how Rock City Church changed your life. I want to hear you say, Jesus changed my life. He gave me life. He gave me hope. That didn't come from a church. It didn't come from a pastor. It came from Jesus. I would have nothing if not for Jesus. We are all about Jesus. Why are we all about Jesus? Because everything and everyone has its beginning in Jesus. Everything and everyone has its beginning in Jesus. I want you to watch this, John chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And then you, you notice it, it, it says this, he, the Word, he. Apparently the Word has a name. His name is Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. Through Jesus, all things were made. Without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light of Jesus shines bright in dark spaces, and the darkness has not, cannot, will not overcome it. Then it gets more specific. The Word, Jesus, became flesh, became flesh, and he, Jesus, made his dwelling among us people. We we have seen the glory of Jesus, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus in the beginning. Now, let's go to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. In the beginning, God. Who was with God in the beginning? The Word. Who is the Word? Jesus. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now I want to show you something because in the first few verses of the Bible, we see clearly God the Father. In the beginning, God. God the Spirit, His Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. And God the Son, Jesus, how, how was creation made? Creation was made by his word. In the beginning, God created how? He wanted there to be light, so he said, let there be light. Who is the word? Jesus. He was with God in the beginning. He is God in the beginning. We all have our start in Jesus. And by the way, if you notice what, what was covering the surface of the deep, darkness. And what, what made the darkness flee? The word. What's the only thing that can bring light into the darkness of this world that we're living in today? It is the word of Jesus Christ. Don't neglect his word. Come on. We need to open his word and learn his word and study his word and declare his word. Why? Because it's the truth of Jesus Christ that will set you free. It's the word. It's the word. Creation is made by his word. Our lives were formed by his word. Watch this. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Our, our lives are formed by his hand. Our lungs are filled with his breath. Why are we all about Jesus? Because our beginning is in him. You formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. To be made means there's a maker. There has to be a maker for something to be made. I am made by God for God. And in Psalm 139, not only am I told who my maker is and that I'm made, but what I'm made for. We were made to worship Jesus. I will praise you for I have been fearfully and wonderfully made. We were created to worship Jesus. So my beginning is in him. All creation, every living and breathing person on the planet, every distant star and sky, galaxy and molecule has its beginning in Jesus. And my purpose is in him, which is to bring honor and glory and praise and worship to Jesus. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 19, if my people don't cry out to me, just wait and see. The rocks will shake. The rocks will cry because I will be worshiped. My beginning is in him. My purpose is in him. My end is in him. What do I mean by my end? Well, here's what the Bible says, that when you stand before God, like all of us will, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. And so there, there, there is coming a point in your life where you'll stand before God and you will bow before him. You will, will worship him. That's the end. Your beginning is in him. You are created. You have a creator. The question isn't, were you created by God and will your end include him by bowing before him? The question is, what are you doing with your life during this in-between? Will you worship him? 
You see, the issue with worship is we don't understand it. People think worship is what we do on Sunday. It's, it's, we think it's, it's, it's the songs that we sing. We, we talk about styles of worship. I don't like this church because I don't like the style, the kind of worship. We, we think worship is about the songs we sing, but worship can't be confined within the four walls of a church building, and it's not meant to just be offered one hour a week or two hours a week. The focus of worship is giving everything I have to Jesus every day, every minute, every hour, bringing him honor and giving him praise through the life that I live. Worship is complete and total output of my life. It's like when, when uh, I use this iPhone, I got the new one. It's the iPhone 11 Pro Max. Anybody got the new one? It's, I feel really cool right now. It's got the three cameras in the back. And I can take a picture of all y'all right now. It's like I can get it all. It's just amazing cameras. But, but uh, I do everything with my phone. So I, I send text messages with my phone. I I answer email with my phone. I check the weather with my phone. I read articles on my phone. I get on Twitter on my phone. I, I found out who won the World Series on my phone because I don't watch that. It's kind of boring to me. Anyways, um, I take pictures and videos with my phone. I plan vacations on it, manage the calendar with it, pay bills with it, have prescriptions delivered by it. I buy everything from groceries to flashlights to J's on this phone. Come on. And when, and when everything on this phone works the way it's supposed to, here, here's what's happening. It doesn't so much reflect me, but when my phone works the way I want it to, it's reflecting the person or the people who made it. So when the phone is working well, it reflects well the, the creator of the phone. When it's not working so well, it reflects the creator of the phone. Because that's what good created things do. Good created things, great created things reflect the greatness of the creator who made them. See, worship in its purest form is when my life reflects the greatness of my maker, Jesus. Worship in its purest form is when my daily life reflects Jesus, when I'm bringing honor to Jesus, not by, just by the songs that I sing, but, but, but the words that I speak and the relationships that I foster and, and the decisions that, that I make because, because that's the output of, of my life. It is worship. It is reflecting Jesus. It's giving him my attention, affection, time, talent, focus, energy, heart, stuff, weaknesses, money, family, desires, strength, friends, my present, my future, insecurities, and fear, my pride. It's knowing that everything I have, it is for you, Lord, because everything good I have, it's from you, Lord, and I would have nothing good in my life but by you, Lord. Worship is all about Jesus. And when worship is all about Jesus, it's not about anything else. It's not about the kind of church that I go to. It's not about the songs that we sing. It's not about a style of music. It's not about anything but Jesus. I'm going to show you one last story, and then I'm going to pray and wrap this up, because there's a story in the Bible that I think completely destroys our, our modern-day understanding of worship if there is anybody in the Bible that, that has reason or that understands worship, I would say it is, it is Job. And yet if there's anybody in the Bible that I would say has reason to not worship, at least in this particular moment of Job's life, I would say it is, it is Job. And I think this story takes our concept of worship and completely annihilates it because here's what the Bible says, that in the land of Uz, which is the name of Job's father, there lived a man whose name was Job, and 
He was a blameless and upright man. He feared God. He shunned evil, had seven sons, three daughters, owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys. And he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people in the East. Job is a wealthy man. He's got it going on. If you lived anywhere near him, you knew him, probably worked for him. He's got everything he needs. And unbeknownst to Job, while he's living his life, the angels come and they present themselves before the Lord and Satan comes with them. And it's like, how, how in the world? Like, what, what is that? What, how, how does that even make sense? Well, you ever been to church before? That's all I'm going to say. It makes sense. It makes sense. <laughs> that totally makes sense. Now, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And he, Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. See, Satan's not trying to show all his cards, but Jesus knows why he's there. That's why Jesus in John 10, 10 said, for the, the, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and to destroy. But I've come that you may have life and life to the full. So the devil's not trying to show all his cards, but the Lord knows. I know why you're here. You're looking for someone to mess with. So then the Lord, love his, his perfect heart, just says, how about you check out my servant Job? <laughs> There's nobody on earth like Job. And you're about to find out why. Because he's blameless and upright. He fears me and he shuns evil. The devil's comeback is, does Job fear you for nothing? Like, have you not protected him? Have you not protected his house? Have you not protected what he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But if you, Lord, spread out your hand and strike everything he's got, he's surely going to curse you. He's not going to love you. The only reason he loves you, the only reason he worships you is because you've been good to him, because he's been blessed by you. But when you take away the blessing, here's what I know about Job. He's going to turn from you. And so the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, don't you lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day, while Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house, a messenger came to Job. He interrupted his little uh, brunch date with his wife sitting at the kitchen table just expecting an easy day. Everybody is out there doing stuff, and Job's just chilling. And, and then the messenger shows up, and he says, sorry to interrupt you, Job, but, but the oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and some Sabians came, and they attacked us, and they made off with, with all of your donkeys and, and, uh, and, and the oxen, and, and they put all your servants to the sword, and I'm the only one that escaped to tell you. I did the math on this. The, 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 the oxen would have cost Job about $3,000 each and maybe $2,500 for every, for every uh, donkey. And, and, and if you take that and translate it to today's standards, that, that was about a three to $4 million loss for Job. So he just, he's watching his like, retirement account sink. And I mean, it's just like, it's just a terrible day. But while that messenger was still speaking, another messenger came in and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up all your sheep, <laughs> 7,000 sheep. And I'm the only one who's come escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another messenger came in and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with all of them 3,000 camels. Now, if I'm Job, I'm just starting to get frustrated right now because it's like my whole world's falling apart. And they put your servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While that man's still speaking, another messenger came in, only this time, this, this dude's got a different look on his face. The other guys were like, I got to tell you what just happened. This dude walks into the room, and he's like, Job can tell he doesn't want to tell him what just happened. He's got a totally, he, he looks like he's just seen a ghost. 
And Job can tell it's about to get a lot worse than it's just been. And go ahead and tell me, what, what do you have to say? And he says, Job, it's your children, <laughs> your sons and your daughters. Not, not some of them, all of them. While they were feasting and drinking wine at your oldest son's house, a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house, and it collapsed on them, and your kids are dead. All of your children are dead. And I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. And the Bible says that, that this is Job's breaking point, because you can tell it's his breaking point, because it's like he could deal with the loss of, of, of stuff. Like, I can deal with the loss of money, and I can, listen, the house burns down. Okay, that's fine. At least we're all safe. We'll find someplace else to live. God is good, right? But what are you going to say when your house burns down and all your kids are gone? See, the Bible says at this, Job gets up. And he falls down onto the ground. He shaved his head and he tore his robe. This, just, this, this, just what people do. I don't know. Like, I wouldn't have done straight shaved my head right then in that moment. Because, like, just, you know, somebody should have probably told him, hey, hold on a minute. You know, you're going to regret this. But, but anyway, it's a bad day for Job. He just falls down. But the Bible says he doesn't get up and fall down so that he can curse God. The Bible says he... He gets up and he falls down so that he can worship God. And Job has the state of mind in this relationship with God where he says, I just need to worship you. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gives and the Lord takes. But may the name of the Lord be praised forevermore. And in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with doing anything wrong. In a matter of moments, he loses everything and, and he still has the state of mind and the state of heart to worship God. So many times I've been guilty of conditional worship where I'll worship you if I feel like things are going good. I'll worship you if I feel comfortable in the moment. I, if I need something, I might ask you for it. If you don't give it to me, I might be mad at you. I don't want to worship you. When things are bad, it's hard sometimes to worship. When things are really good, it's hard sometimes to worship. I just think it's hard sometimes to worship. It takes focus. It takes discipline. It it takes a constant reminding that I am the created and you are the creator and you are better and you are good and you are worthy of my worship. You are worthy of my praise. Without you, I have nothing. Take everything from me, but give me Jesus. Come on, somebody. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Take my stuff, but give me Jesus. Apostle Paul writes of a people in Romans chapter 1. He says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Sounds like the world we're living in right now. And they worshiped and served, created things rather than the creator. And I think sometimes that looks like the church. When it is all about Jesus. I don't care about anything. Just give me Jesus. And when you live your life for Jesus, I'm telling you, you'll be so 
blessed. I, I'm not talking about just, just all the, 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 the things that we would like to consider blessings. I'm talking about you will be blessed with peace that, that will surpass your circumstance. You will be blessed with hope and, and light in the midst of the darkness that surrounds you. You, you will be blessed with, with the, a pr- the presence of God, the power of God, the confidence of the Holy Spirit of God, the strength of God. When it's all about Jesus. Here's what I love about our creator. If you think about most creators, when, 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 when something is made that doesn't work the way it's supposed to work, what most creators will do is they will disregard and start over. Okay, this didn't work. Scratch that off the list. This ain't working out either. Scratch it off the list. This didn't work either. Let's go ahead and come completely deconstruct this and we'll, we'll try again. We'll start over. We'll, we'll do something brand new. When, when, when most creators approach a failure, they, they, they tend to disregard the failure and they just start again. What I love about our creator is he doesn't just start again with somebody new. He starts again, but with you. And he doesn't reconstruct you from the outside in. He reconstructs you from the inside out. See, that's what I love about our creator. He, he doesn't disregard us when we fail. He, he's never disregarded you, though you've purposefully turned your back on him. He didn't walk away from you when you walked away from him. He didn't give up on his plan and his purpose for your life just because you've done made a mess of your life. He's been with you. He's walked with you. He's stuck by you. Come on. His word still stands for you. He's still got promise for you. He's still got purpose for you. That's why the Bible says everybody who calls on the name of who? Jesus will be saved. That salvation is found in nobody else but the name of Jesus for he is the only name that has been given. The only one who can save you. The only one who did what Jesus did is Jesus. Nobody else even claimed to. To live a perfect, sinless life, to present himself before the Father, a perfect, spotless, sinless lamb. To become the sacrifice for all of us who've sinned, that he could take upon himself the sin of everybody to be rightly judged in full by God the Father so that we wouldn't have to. That's what Jesus did. And then the, the grave couldn't hold him. He, he shows us, I've, I've got power over death. I've got, I've got power in life. I've just got power. I've got power to set you free. I've got power to bring you healing. I've got power to save every sin you've ever made and ever committed. I've got power to restore every person who's made a mess of their life. I've got power to get you back on track. I've got power to, to make another uh, inroad because you done put a, put a roadblock on this road. I'll, I'll get you there. I'll get you there. Just trust me. So I'm asking you today, would you trust him? Let's do this. Would you stand up on your feet, every every location right now? Stand up on your feet. and Would you take the communion elements in your hand? I hope you got them when you walked in today. We're going to take communion together. If you could just take the the bread and hold that in your hand. I'm going to ask us to pray together. And some of us, this is just going to be a moment of recommitment. Some of us, it's it's a moment of thanks. Some of us here today, though, this is going to be the first time in your life that you will acknowledge Jesus as Lord of your life. 
Well, you'll say to him, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. I need you. I need a savior. I can't save myself. And for some of you today, you're going to pray with me. And, and this is going to be the day that Jesus saves you. The Bible says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The wage of our sin is death. It separates us from God. But the gift of life is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And everybody who calls on Jesus' name will be saved. So would you take that bread in your hand and hold it out and just say this, Jesus, thank you. This bread represents your body, bruised and broken for me. You endured, you suffered, you were betrayed, you were hurt, you were lied to, lied about, abandoned, just like we've all been. But you pressed through for me and you chose suffering so that my suffering could be healed and settled in you. Would you eat this bread right now? And just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And with the cup in your hand, would you say, Jesus, thank you. This cup represents your blood. Pour it out for me. Jesus, I ask you, forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me from the inside out. Make me new. Restore my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Use me for your glory, to bring you glory, to bring you honor. In Jesus' name, I choose you to follow you, to trust you with all of me. In Jesus' name. Come on, would you take that cup right now and just say, thank you, Jesus. Come on, if you, if you want to, you can put your hands together and say, thank you, Jesus. Come on, you can make some noise and say, thank you, Jesus, as the worship team comes out. Come on, we're going to begin to sing and worship Jesus because he's good, because he's faithful. Amen. Come on, let's worship him.